Hello, welcome to Truro Airwaves, Truro Public Library's podcast. This month we decided to hand the microphone over to ninth grader Anya Vargas. Anya is a staple here at the library, whether she's watering our new edible walking path, helping Miss Maggie with the little ones, or checking out piles upon piles of reading materials. Please enjoy her interview with award-winning author and soon-to-be-retired English professor at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Gary Schmidt. His most recent novel was just released, The Labors of Hercules Beale. Okay, so I guess we should start. So what inspires you to write this book? Um, oh, you know, that's a harder question than, uh, than it would seem to be. Um, this book started actually a long time ago with the idea that what would it be like for someone to try and um, to redo the, the labors of Hercules um, in the modern time. And in some ways, when you read through them, they tend to be a little bit repetitive. I mean, there's some that are unique. There's quite a few where you go and capture this animal and bring it back. And so I wasn't sure that, that, that it would ever really, really work and I mean, would it get to be fantasy? And you know, if you if you're talking about Greek myths and fantasy, Rick Riordan has pretty much cornered that market. So there's really not a whole lot to to do right with that. Um, so it, it was one of those ideas that is was sitting around, and I was waiting to see if it would really work or not. And maybe it would. And then there are lots like lots of ideas like that. And then it really did um, click when I figured out first off the place Truro. And then when I figured out that this it isn't just about the adventure, but that there has to be something bigger, more to give it guts. And in this case, you know, why would he do it? Like, why would you do this? And the reason is obviously, um, it'll, it took me a while to come to this, is that he's grieving. I mean, he's, lose, he's lost his parents. And so he's grieving over that. And as it turns out, um, the mythical Hercules the Greek myth Hercules also starts these 12 labors because he's grieving the loss of his family. And so I figured, okay, there, there it is. I mean, there's, there's an interesting connection. Um, He has a teacher who is recognizing his need for that. And he's going to give him the same thing that the gods gave to Hercules. Um, The chance to sort of work through these things each one getting more and more intense until you have the one where he actually goes down into hell, um, but comes back. And it's the coming back that he has to be made ready for. So um, that's a long answer to that. But the the idea is is pretty much um, didn't know what to do with this, didn't know what to do with this until I finally figured out, oh, that's what this is really about. Oh, have you been to Churro before? Like what helped you decide to set the story in Churro? You know, there is a kind of mythical feel to me about, and I know this is going to sound silly, but um, for me, Puro has a sort of mythical feel. Um, I was a kid. I was uh, a young teenager. My grandmother had moved up to Dennis, which is a ways away from you, but not terrible far away from you. And so we had, we came maybe two, three times a year, my family um, up from Long Island where we lived up to Cape Cod to spend time with my grandmother. And I think of the family, of the group of us, I was the one who really fell in love with the Cape. And I just, I loved everything about it. I loved um, 
the feel of, I mean, we would, we would drive on six, six and I would always ask my father to drive on six a because, you know, the highway is fast, but it's just a highway, but six a, which is not fast is more than a highway. It's the sort of, you go through the old Cape in a sense. And I just love that. And I loved living there for a while. Um, and in college, I was there for a semester as an intern with Dennis or in Dennis. And whenever I could, I would drive the length and breadth of Cape Cod. Um, I love coming and love the cold days, especially. I love the days before tourists came, which probably you're experiencing now. The opposite, yeah. And I remember going up to Truro where this. Um, uh, yeah, you weren't around then. I was I was up to Truro one day when um, I, I'm not sure if my parents were with me or where it was, but I walked walked up into this amazing dune where you could see both sides, and it was such a stunning moment for me um, over by the National Seashore there. And then I read about it with with uh, Thoreau and his walking, and he has a long chapter about stopping by a fisherman's hut in Truro. I mean, all of those things have just always been a part of me for a really long time. And now I live in Michigan, which is a goodly away away from Cape Cod. So I haven't been there for a while. And so it's sort of sweet sometimes to imaginatively put yourself in the setting as you're writing. And as you're sitting at your desk in Alto, Michigan, pleasantly remembering and being in Truro. That was, it was good. So yeah, all those things coming together, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I was wondering, why did you choose to incorporate Charles Anthon's classical dictionary into the story? <laughs> uh, that's funny. You should pick that up. Um, when I was in graduate school, there was a, uh, a really great used bookshop. And it was a real bookshop, like, you know, not, not just books from 10 years ago, but books from, you know, 100 and 200 and 300 years ago. The kind of bookshop you walk into and you just smell it and you know, oh, yeah, this is the right kind of bookshop. Um, you guys have one on Cape Cod called Parnassus, which is um, I lived in when I was a kid. I, I just loved. And then um, there's also one in East Sandwich called um, Titcombs Bookshop, which I go to even whenever I whenever I'm back. Um, but anyway, this bookshop, I was well into the graduate school. school. I was studying medieval literature and this bookshop closed. And so I went over there um, in the last days where everything was for sale and they had Anthon's classical dictionary. And there's a companion, by the way, but I didn't think it was important for this. Uh, that's more historical. But both of those books were for sale and it was fantastic. I mean, I knew I could never have afforded those to graduate student. You have no money anyway. Um, but there were these really 1840s books that were fantastic. Um, and I think I write in the book how when you touch them, the, the, the leather is so old, it just comes off in your hand. It's all dust. I bought those books. I had them for a long time and then was asked by the town of Concord, Massachusetts, to come on the 100th anniversary of um, Hawthorne's death. And they were having a big celebration. And I was asked to write uh, or to do a presentation on his children's books. And I discovered what I had known about those books is that they were the books that Hawthorne used to write two books um, for kids about Greek mythology, uh, Tanglewood Tales and uh, Wonder, oh, it a Wonder Book. I think it's a Wonder Book. 
And I was just sort of blown away by that um, and thought someday it'd be fun to look at the passages that he used and how he adapted them. And someday I may still do that. But in any case, it just made me love the books more. So there I am in my study directly above us, sitting at the desk, I'm working on Greek myths. I had some questions about um, mostly spelling issues, um, but also some issues of, about the stories themselves. And I thought, well, let's see how it is. I know it's old and there's a lot of other reference books that you could use for Greek myths, but there was something about it that was just cool to me. So I pulled them down and got leather all over me and you know all that dust, and that was that was it. Um, and I used those throughout the book. Well, that was pretty cool that you made it in Churro, the library where we are right now. <laughs> okay, so well, it's such a great time. What was your favorite part of the story as the writer? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think the. The, the hardest part, and thus my favorite part, was to figure out how it is that a middle school kid could reenact some of these stories, or how they could even be reenacted by anyone. Um, and that was really the difficulty with each one of those. You had to make them different too, right? So there are all these stories about capturing animals, and they can't all be the same. But it seemed to me that there were um, there were ways that I could do that here that would be mo modern. And that would be sometimes funny and sometimes exciting, um, sometimes just odd in a way. But I wanted it to be something that it would that would be intriguing each time. Oh. Um, so the hospital one was probably the first one I wrote, which is out of order, um, where you have all of these machines that are attached to this person, and you just go, oh my gosh, you know how. Like it looks like the nine-headed hydra. I mean, it even looks like it with, with it, the way it works. Um, the auction one, I really, really liked. It's actually one of my favorite ones where Hercules is trying to buy back the hippo so that he can give it back to the artist. Um, all of those things, sitting down well before I said paper to pen or pen to paper, rather, um, just trying to figure out how could this work. And that, once that came to me, that was great. I mean, sometimes there were a bunch of false starts where you do something like, no, that doesn't work after like 20 pages and you're really frustrated. But sometimes it was just right there. I knew exactly what the, what the match was for it. Um, so the Aegean stables, for example, and to get everything out of the building to clean. And then you think, okay, what is it like to do that if it was a school to do that? And by, by chance, I'm actually cleaning out an office at my school where I teach that I've been living in for 38 years. You just can't believe how much stuff you accumulate for 38 years, and now I have to bring it home. I mean, those sorts of things, that just sort of worked out. So I, say, I would say that's my favorite part of it, matching the old myth to the new recreation. Yeah, that sounds like an intricate thing to do. It was a challenge, and that's what makes it interesting. I mean, if you if it's all just easy and given, oh, okay, I guess. But if it's if it's a challenge, then there's a lot of um, a lot of fun with it, even. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing that you think about when you wake up late at night, like when you're like, I don't know, I'm still not, I'm not, not sure about this, and then you hope it comes to you. Was any of the characters inspired by people in your life, or what inspired you to create them? Yeah, I mean, the the bus driver was a real person. 
um, sort of this cranky, cranky guy who yelled at the kids all the time. Um, I only rode a bus one year, but I remember him very, very vividly um, because he was, he was such a cranky guy. My dog is thinking we should be out playing right now. Thank you very much. Um, so he was right there. Um, the artist that, uh, the sculptor there is actually based upon a real artist who lives up in uh, Cambridge. Not, not terrible far from you guys. Like, well, it's a ways, I guess it is. Um, and her name is Nancy Schoen. Um, if you remember in the Boston Public Gardens, there are the ducklings, the Robert McCloskey's sculpture, sculpt, sculptures of the, the ducklings. Um, she's the one who did that. And I just uh, have a huge admiration for her and for the work that she does. And so it felt like I wanted to kind of get her in there. So whenever I was doing that character, I was actually thinking Nancy um, and how she does her work. Um, the kid is um, not so much based on a real person, um, but is based on kind of a conglomeration, I suppose, a kid in need, obviously. Uh, Mr. Huffer, Lieutenant Colonel Huffer, um, is actually based on two kids that I knew. Um, his name is Danny Huffer, and the two kids were Danny Schmidt and Ernie Huffer. Danny was not a relation. And I just uh, took those two kids and smashed them together. Um, and that actually happened in a novel called The Wednesday Wars, like years ago, like 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and so that Danny in the book, Hercules, is actually the same character, but now grown up after a career in the Marines. Um, also, my T, his wife, is in that previous book. So yeah, there's a lot of characters who are taking, at least parts of them are based upon real people. Oh, nice. Why are the Cape Cod Academy for Environmental Sciences and the Beals Brother Farm and Nursery important to your story? Hmm. Those are not real places. Obviously, you know Truro. And yeah. so those are made as are the streets around there um, so that I could just manipulate the action going on. Um, the nursery was a real big one for me. Uh, my father loved, loved working with plants. And his great goal in life, um, I think probably un until he started having children, was uh, to have a nursery, to own a nursery, to do make that as his his um, his business. But he never got it. He was never able to do that. And he loved the job that he had, but he never he would have like adored this job if he could have been working in a nursery all the time. And in a way, I've always sort of regretted that for him on his behalf that he never got to do that thing that he really, really would have loved to do more than anything else. Um, and so I've always thought in a number of different books how cool it would be if I could somehow incorporate a nursery in there. So that seemed to work. Um, in this one, it seemed a place that a family would want to keep, like if, you're, if it's the Beale family nursery, right? Um, so that it gives an excuse or a reason for the brother to come back Otherwise, he could just take, you know, Hercules to Washington with him or wherever he was living. There's no reason why he would have to stay there, but it matters to him because of that place. It's also a very nurturing place. And so um, if you think about what a nursery does, how it nurtures green things and plants and then sends those out into the world. And then if you add to that what a school does, what a really fine school is always going to do, which is also about nurturing and sending people out into the world. 
it seemed like that would be a really interesting place to put those together. Um, the school is actually based upon a real school, <clears throat> um, probably one of the most amazing schools I've gone to. I go to about 50 schools a year. And this is a school in Uniondale, New York, which I was utterly blown away by. Um, you're not going to believe this as I tell you what this school is like. You're going to think I'm making this up, but this is absolutely true. It's a school that believes firmly in uh, responding to the natural world. So when you walk into the school, <clears throat> there are these cages where there are really minor birds and the minor birds are calling out the names of the kids. That's true. Oh, really? You walk down one hall, one, one hall and it's all these uh, saltwater tanks. The other hall is all freshwater tanks of fish. Straight through is this big, big arcade um, and open air um, piece. And so that description of what's in there, the, you know, the turtles, the big turtles, um, pheasants, and uh, I mean, just peacocks and all these animals. It was incredible. But what was mostly cool was that um, when you walk in, there are dogs. So like you go to the gym and there's a gym dog go to the um, administrative offices and there's an administrative office dog. There's a dog who lives in a house and kids take uh, one of their subjects is zoo so that you learn how it is that you take care of a zoo. Excuse me. And the, the animals are incredibly well-tamed and people sign up to take turns about taking care of them. Obviously the dogs can't stay inside all the time. So you have to walk them. And I just absolutely adored the school. I, I was just blown away. It's the St. Martin de Porres School. Uh, I don't know the rest of the title in Uniondale, New York. Um, it was also a, a school that my wife went went on one of the gigs with me. Um, and it was when we got up. It's run by these brothers. There, not Jesuits. I forget what the order was. Um, and so when we're eating breakfast, there are five or six huge dogs around us the whole time. I mean, looking over the tables. And I thought it was great, but Anne was sort of, uh. So yeah, I mean, when I'm writing about that stool, I'm writing about a stool that's real to me, not to me, but it's real. I mean, just to give you one sense of it, this is a, um, it's a heavily gang-oriented area. And what's cool about it is that if you have a guy from one gang and a guy from another coming down the hall, you can imagine there's a lot of tension. But um, when I asked the principal about that, he said, a dog comes up, and de-escalates. You're focused on the dog. You're not focused on the other gang member. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty cool. Anyway, so both places are, are quite real to me. Did following the structure of the labors of Hercules help in creating this story? Yeah, I've done that with a number of books <clears throat> where there's an external structure which sets you up. And so in this one, it's a really pretty simple structure. Start with the problem go through each 12, uh, each of the each of the labors, come to some conclusion so that you're watching this kiddo change from someone that you see at the beginning in someone that can make um, a very different sort of world. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, that structure is absolutely huge. I'm out of questions. Hey, hey thanks so much. Thank thanks you. for Thank doing you. this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone, and a big thank you to Anya and Gary Schmidt. His latest novel, The Labors of Hercules Beale, published by HarperCollins, is out now. 
or borrow it from the Clams Library system. While you're there, check out some of his other novels, The Wednesday Wars, Just Like That, Okay For Now, just to name a few. This is Justine signing off for the Truro Public Library. We'll talk next month. Thank you. Thank you.